Oh, praise God. Well, are you guys ready to get into the Word this morning? Let's pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. And Lord, I pray that as we begin to study your Word this morning, that our hearts and our minds would be ready to receive what you have for us. Lord, give us understanding of your Word. And we want to, we want to grow, Father. We want to mature. We don't want to stay where we were. Um, this is, this, we don't want this to be just a, uh, a, a spiritual checklist for us, but Father, we want to advance and mature as we uh, are, are pressing on towards the goal of who Jesus was. We want to look more like him, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, praise God. We're going to go ahead and continue on in the Gospel of John. Uh, we'll start where Pastor Joseph left off last week in verse 13, and we're going to make it through verse 25 today. And you remember that last week, as, as Pastor Joseph was ending up, we have Jesus making his way to Capernaum. And uh, this is just after his first uh, public miracle at the wedding where he goes and turns all the, the water into wine. And uh, that's his first public miracle. So him and his disciples head to Capernaum. And it turns out that while Jesus is in Galilee, Capernaum ends up kind of being his home base for his ministry. And uh, it's, it's kind of a good city for that because it's located on a major trade route and it uh, turns out to be a pretty important um, city in the region. And it also turns out to be where uh, many of the disciples were actually from or lived. Um, Capernaum is where Jesus actually called Matthew to follow him. And it was, like I said, the home of many of the other disciples as well. So what happens is, is he does this miracle, he leaves the, the wedding, and he stays in Capernaum for a few days um, because the Passover is coming. And as the Passover is coming, um, Jesus begins to make his way to Jerusalem. And he has to deal with a pretty specific issue. And uh, that's what's throwing me off, man. You shaved your beard. I'm like, man, who is this kid over there? I'm looking at him like, I know it's Stephen, but something's not right. Distracted me. Hallelujah. Now, now, now we've addressed it, so hopefully it won't bother me anymore, and I won't keep getting. Uh, hallelujah. So, <laughs> anyway, Jesus is in Capernaum. Passover's coming up. He's going to head up to Jerusalem for the Passover uh, uh, celebration and the 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 feast that's going on during that week. And he's going to deal with a pretty uh, a major issue of what's going on in the temple. You recall, I'm going to give you a, a sneak peek, but a peek, sneak, sneak peek. See what you've done to me, Stephen? He's going to give you a, give you a sneak peek. And Jesus goes in there and he, and he drives all the money changers and the merchants and the lenders. He kicks everybody out of the temple. He's upset with what's going on because they've essentially turned what should be the house of worship into a, a market and, and probably not a very honest market at that. And what I find interesting is, is do you guys remember, it was probably, it might have been the, the late 90s when it was big, the early 2000s, the uh, WWJD, like there was all the bracelets, WWJD, and that meant what would Jesus do? Well, I always found it interesting that apparently getting mad, making a whip, hitting people and kicking people out of the temple, getting, that was, that's, that's a valid option. So uh, if you guys are curious, what would... Man, you guys are going to mess me up today. I can feel it already. You know what? Next time someone distracts, we're just going to start over from the beginning. We'll be here all day till we can make it through without me being just... Hallelujah. Anyway, let's go ahead and get started. 
Second John chapter 2, verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So every year, the Passover celebration was held in the temple of Jerusalem. And it was a requirement for every Jewish male to make the pilgrimage, the journey to, um, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Actually, if you read the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 16, 16, every Jewish male was required to appear before the Lord three times a year in Jerusalem. And that's for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is what's happening here. It's Passover. So Passover lasts uh, for the first day, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread goes on for the rest of the week. Uh, The next one that the men had to appear to was the Feast of Weeks, which is actually when Pentecost happens. And the third one is the Feast of Booths, which I think you may have heard of, maybe the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. These are the three major feasts that every man, according to Deuteronomy 16.16, has to make it to Jerusalem and appear before the Lord. And like I said, this Passover is just one day, and then they celebrate for an entire week. And the truth, the reality is, is this celebration is, is commemorating the times that the Jews were set free from Egypt. Because you remember the story then, right? So, so uh, God told the Jewish people, you need to go ahead and sacrifice the lamb, paint the blood on the doorstep, because I'm going to send an angel of death, and he's going to kill every firstborn male. And if you don't have the, the blood on the doorstep then you're not covered, and, and uh, the, the, the angel is coming in, and he's not looking at your, your nationality. He's not looking at where you're from. He's looking, did you do what I told you? Did you put the covering on the door? And he's going through, and we remember this was the final event when Pharaoh finally said, you know what, get everybody, get your kids, get your animals, get everybody, and get out of, my, get out of here, take everything. And, and this is when the Jews were ultimately set free. And that's what Passover is all about. That's what they're celebrating in this festival. And we'll find as we go through the book of John, or the Gospel of John, that this is one of five feasts that John mentions Jesus attending throughout the Gospel. And one of the things you'll notice that Jesus often does is he criticizes and he often ignores man-made traditions, even when they're made in the name of God. All the man-made traditions, Jesus doesn't have time for them, and he's, he actually criticizes them for all these things, and he ignores them. But Jesus was always diligent to uphold the law. Jesus actually came to fulfill the law. So when he lived his life, he fulfills in every moment. And in his death, at that moment, in his resurrection, he actually fulfills the law for us. But because he was always diligent to uphold his father's law, he, just like every other Jewish man who was devout, made his way up to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover and the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. So then in verse 14 through 16, it says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So Jesus now, he's up in Jerusalem, he's made his way to the temple. And the temple was on a hill um, overlooking the city. And this is actually the same site where Solomon built the first temple nearly a thousand years earlier in 949 B.C. Now this temple was later destroyed by the Babylonians. And you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 25. But it it was destroyed and then rebuilt again in 515 B.C. So this is actually the second temple. 
Um, and God had originally set this up so that people would come and they would sacrifice their animals. And Jesus gets here, and, and what should have been a house of worship, people are making it a house of trade, and, and Jesus gets pretty upset. And it's rightfully so that he's upset because, like I said, God had instituted this, this uh, as a way for people to come and, and worship. They were giving some, they were sacrificing something to God. And they were supposed to bring their best animals out of their own flocks to come up and sacrifice to the temple. However, what the priests had done is they created a, a market of animals for those who were making very, very long trips. Because like I said, everyone has to go to Jerusalem. It didn't matter how far away you lived, you had to make it to Jerusalem. So what they did was is they said, you know what, we're going to go ahead and sell animals here so people don't have to bring their animals all the way with them on these long trips. And there's a couple things here that would be interesting. One, I would imagine if you're not bringing your own animals, the sacrifice is going to be a little bit less personal. Right, you're just picking one up at the market. I've also heard, and and I've heard this before. I couldn't find it while I was studying this time, um, but I recall that it was also possible that when people would come with their animals, um, because they were just trying to make a profit here, the the priests or the merchants who were selling them would look over the animals that were brought, and they would find a flaw and say, "Nope, you have to buy one of ours now. This one's not going to be good enough." So there was this 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 idea that the what's going on here is not not a very uh, godly thing. It's people taking advantage of others. We also find that uh, the cost of the animals were probably more expensive when you bought them in the temple as well than if you would have just bought them at home and and raised them and brought them with you. And it's probably the, a reality that the money exchangers weren't very honest either. Because here's the thing, when you got to the temple to buy the animals to sacrifice, you had to use local currency. Well, like I said, these people are coming from everywhere. In addition to pay the temple tax, which was a requirement, you also had to use local currency. So what was happening is the money changers were like, hey, they got to buy our currency to do these things. We'll go ahead and exchange it for you. But the exchange rates weren't that great. And they were overcharging people to exchange their money. It seems like everything that was going on here was was strictly about trade. It was a house of trade. It was about profit. And truthfully, many people were probably being taken advantage of. So Jesus is pretty upset, and I think rightfully so, at the the dishonest dealings that are going on in in the court of the Gentiles here. And, but more than anything, I think he was probably upset that they're doing it on temple grounds. If you've ever seen a picture of the temple, and I forgot to put it up here, but you have the, the, the inner sanctuary where you have the, the holy place and the holy of holies and the, the sanctuary, and then outside of that is the court of the Gentiles. If you were a Gentile that converted to Judaism, that's as far as you could go. You couldn't go any further in. You had to stay in the court of the Gentiles. But that is where you would come and you would worship God. Well, can you imagine if, if you were to come here on a Sunday morning and we're going to get ready to worship, but I had the whole area covered with booths where you could buy stuff and you didn't have any room to worship. That's what it looked like. So th- th- this is supposed to be a place where, where foreigners could come, they could worship, the Gentiles could come, they could worship, uh, convert to Judaism and worship, but instead it's all taking up with, this, with a market instead of being a place where God was honored. So Jesus, he gets upset, and he fashions a whip from cords, and he just has at him. He drives them all out, the merchants, the money changers, the oxen, the sheep. He, just, he gets on all of them and drives them all out 
of the, the, the court of the Gentiles, and he restores this place to what it should have been, a place of worship, not a place of trade. Now, one interesting thing about this encounter is that if, you, if you're familiar with the other Gospels, Jesus um, turning over tables, kicking everybody out, and the Synoptic Gospels, which is just a fancy way of saying the other three Gospels, is uh, uh, this happens at the end of his ministry, right before he is crucified. This happens at that last Passover meal that he attends. John has it in the beginning of Jesus' ministry um, instead of at the end. So this has caused a lot of, of scholars and stuff to study this and speculate about what's going on. And there's, there's two uh, somewhat viable um, options for what happened. First is that John, when he writes, as we talked about when we started this all off, John is concerned with theology. John is concerned with the deeper meanings of what uh, Jesus was trying to teach and and portray. This is what John's concerned about. So he's a little bit less um, strict when it comes to the timeline, and he's more uh, he's more worried about uh, teaching things and making sure that, that the, the, the themes of what he's trying to teach are in the right place. So it is possible that John knows about what happened at, during the Feast of Passover right before Jesus died. He says, you know what, this makes more sense when I'm telling my story. I'm just going to move this up to the beginning. Now, that doesn't really change anything. It doesn't mean that John's lying. John's just trying to, to, to make a point. And, and this is something that happened to Jesus. It was not like he made it up. But the other option is it happened twice. (laughs) And this is kind of what I lean towards. Um, There's enough differences in the story to to make it seem like two separate events. And the truth is, is that when you're reading the scripture, really when you're dealing with anything, the simplest solution is usually the right solution. So this probably happened twice. And the truth is, this was a big deal because these events, one of the reasons that Jesus was sent to the cross because he's in there challenging the religious establishment and their authority. The first time probably just caught him off guard. Like, what the heck? Who is this guy coming in here? But the, the second time when he came in right before he was crucified, that was one of the things. Was, you know what? We're done with this. It's time to send this guy to the cross. Um, but the reality is, is, is I think that it probably happened twice but I'm no scholar. It just makes sense to me that if it's in there, it's, it, we'll just go with the simplest solution. Amen? So, but as we look at the story, no matter how it happened, the reality is this event did happen, whether it happened twice or once, there are some things that we can learn from it, and I think it's important that we do learn from it. The reality is it's very easy to take something that God has put together and mess it up. <laughs> We're actually pretty good at that as humans. As we, God does something good and we try to mess it up. See, the thing is, is that they were supposed to take these animals to the temple. They were supposed to sacrifice them. God had commanded them to do so. Another truth is that, uh, another fact is that there's nothing wrong with exchanging money. There's nothing wrong with buying and selling animals. There's nothing wrong with any of these things in particular that they were doing. But the problem is, is that man got involved in something that God was doing, and it gets kind of twisted and messed up. And instead of being what it was supposed to be, a place where people could come and, and, and worship and honor their God, it ended up becoming, you know, it ended up becoming the farmer's market at the temple. 
And here's the thing. Although it had become a money-making endeavor, and it wasn't uh, what God intended in the beginning, it wasn't God-focused anymore, it probably didn't happen deliberately. I don't imagine that one morning all the priests got together and said, you know what? I'm tired of coming in here and serving these people all day long and nothing to show for it. I got a plan. And, you know, old uh, uh, Zephaniah or whoever's there puts up his PowerPoint and he says, this is my three-step process to how we're going to become filthy rich. It probably didn't happen like that. What probably happened is there were some priests that were like, you know what? You know, God has commanded us to come here for this and to make this trip. But look how hard it is on some of these families. Or some families, maybe they make the trip and the animals don't survive for whatever reason. I said, you know what? What if we started a ministry that would be helpful to these people? And it probably started out as something good. It probably started out as something genuine. But over time, you know, the, the whole slippery slope happened and, and it turned into this dishonest, money-making endeavor. So instead of being a ministry that was interested in helping the people worship God, it became a, uh, a system that was interested in making people money. And we can do this today if we're not careful. We can, we can go ahead and, and, and get so focused and wrapped up in our programs and the things that we do that it, it stops being God-focused and it starts being people-focused. You see, what happens when worship on a Sunday morning becomes more about the show than it does about worshiping God? What happens when worship becomes all about glorifying the singers or maybe even the venue if you got a really nice place instead of about glorifying God? What happens when our programs become put in place just for the sake of having programs instead of what they're meant to do which should be to lead people to Jesus and glorify God. The truth is, is that anytime something that's supposed to be about God becomes something about something else, we've kind of messed it up. And we can fall into the same trap that these priests did. So after this all happens, we get into verse 17, and it says, His disciples remembered that it was written Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 69.9 that says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And it has always been thought to not only refer to the psalmist who is saying this, but also to refer to the Messiah. And clearly, as we read in reference to Jesus, the disciples remembering what it's written, clearly the disciples understood this psalm to refer to Jesus as well. And the reality is, is that Jesus' zeal for God would ultimately endanger his life. That's what it says here, right? Uh, zeal of your house for your house has consumed me, but the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And Jesus' zeal would ultimately endanger his own life. Because here's the deal. Jesus saw his father's house. The temple is his father's house. And as a result, he had a claim of ownership on that house. And the claim that he was making was unmistakable by those in the marketplace because how could they think anything else that he had made a claim of ownership when he said, all y'all get out. This is my father's house. You're messing it up. 
So what happens is because Jesus takes these actions, he's perceived as a threat to the religious establishment of the day. And like I said earlier, this is a big part of why he was being crucified. This event and the one that happens right before he actually goes to the cross, he's in there and he's, he's making a stink. He's saying, you guys are getting it wrong. You're messing up my father's house. And he's, he's going against what they had in place because although they may not have intended it to be this way, at this point now, someone's got a PowerPoint saying, well, this is what happened. This is the money we're making and we kind of like it. And he's going against what they, what they had going on. He's going against what they were doing. He's, he's turning people away from them. And, and because of that, the religious establishment of the time, they're getting pretty upset. And it does endanger his life. And I imagine the disciples here are a little shocked with Jesus' display. I made a joke earlier about what would Jesus do. Apparently, you know, fashioning a quart of whips and just wailing into people is a valid option. That's not what people meant when they made the little what would Jesus do bracelets. Right? They're talking about always, you know, turn the other cheek. Love everybody. It's also because they misunderstand what Jesus would do. Jesus would hold you accountable. <laughs> Although they think Jesus would just let you get away with anything. But the reality is, is I imagine the disciples are a little shocked because they've been Jesus for a while. They probably haven't seen this kind of display. And now all of a sudden, this isn't the same Jesus that they, they, were, they were talking to this morning. They're probably a little shocked at what happened, but the reality is, is that we know from this that whether they did right away, um, it says they remembered what is, ri is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Certainly, after he was resurrected, they remembered this day. They remembered what Jesus had done. And they understood that what Jesus had done was according to God's will, and ultimately uh, his actions were ordained by God and fulfilled prophecy. It's a, Jesus fulfills over 300 plus prophecies in the Old Testament, and this is just one of them. And then in verse 2, 18 through, through 20, we get the response of the Jewish people that are in the temple. So, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Hmm. You see, after Jesus did what he did, he's got some of those Jews that were there questioning, listen, who do you think you are? By what right do you have to do what you just did? Where's your credentials is basically what they're asking him. And his actions, what he did, and then by telling them that this is my father's house, it demonstrates that Jesus understood that he had the authority to kick these people out of the temple. And people always want a sign to prove Jesus' authority comes from God. Everybody always wants a sign. Truth is, many Christians want a sign. Lord, give me a sign that I need to do this. Or anybody ever did the, uh, the Bible study roulette or Bible verse roulette? You know, where you take the pages and you're like, oh, God wants me to do this. Everyone's looking for a sign. But the reality is, is that God doesn't work that way. You don't have to flip through and pick a, a random one. Just read any of them. They're all talking to you. But the reality is, is that people want a, a sign of Jesus' authority. And today, truthfully, the response is the same from people today all the time. 
And actually, when I think about it, many people don't even want a sign of his authority. Because here's the deal. If Jesus, if, if Jesus came down and gave absolute proof of who he was, and said, here's the sign, and you have no other option to accept my authority, then they would have to change the way they live. People today aren't even looking, like people aren't, today aren't seeking the truth anymore. They like the way that they have it. They just want to keep living the way they are. And if they ignore Jesus, if they deny his existence, if they deny his authority or his power, then they can, they can at least in their own heads, keep living the way that they're living without any kind of guilt or anything on their conscience. Because they balled their conscience, even though the Holy Spirit's screaming at them, they balled it up tiny and small. And if they can just ignore everything else, they can keep them trapped and not listen. And do whatever they want without feeling bad because they've decided that Jesus has no authority and is wrong. So now they're not even looking for a sign anymore. Because that's the truth. If, 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 they, had, if they believe that Jesus was who he says he was, if they, if they allow any way for that to creep in, then they have to change how they're living. You don't have an option anymore. So these people, they asked for a sign from Jesus. They said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Basically, what right do you have to do these things? And Jesus says, you know what? For a sign, I'm going to, uh, you destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And uh, the truth is, is that this isn't the sign that they were expecting as the answer to this. Because the truth is, is that Jesus is the sign. <laughs> For his own authority. The fact that he's here, God in the flesh, he is the sign. And what he's going to do when he, when he dies and raised from the cross, that'll be the sign. Because they would kill him, ultimately destroying his body, and in three days he would rise again. And the fact that he rises again is definitive proof that what he did was approved by God. You know, if, if Jesus had just died and never rose again, we would never be sure. We could say that he died for our sins, but we'd never be sure. But the fact that he rose from the dead was definitive proof that God approved of what he did and was with him. But the Jews were actually unable to perceive what Jesus is trying to tell them. And here's the thing. We read this stuff and we're like, man, how could they be so stupid? It's so obvious. So obvious to us. We've already read the New Testament. We know all the details. What he's telling them right now, he, it sounds ridiculous because they have no idea he's talking about himself and, and, and they have no inclination to try to dig a little bit deeper. So they're looking at the temple going, wait a minute, this took us 46 years to build and you think you can do it in three days? They don't even mention how are you going to destroy this temple, which I think is a pretty big deal too. I mean, I don't imagine you can destroy the temple all that quickly as well. But anyways, as you know what, you destroy, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And the truth is, is that if any of us were there that day, that's probably the same response that we have. It's really easy for us to look at what's going on in these people's lives with all the hindsight that we have, knowing all that we have, and go, man, these guys are so dumb. It's obvious Jesus is talking about himself. But the truth is, is that they didn't know, and, and many of them weren't inclined to find out because all they saw was a man who was, who was trying to destroy what they already had. How could Jesus build the temple again if, he if it took them 46 years to build it? But in verse 21, it says, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
You see, we know that Jesus wasn't referring to the physical temple. He was referring to his body. He wasn't referring to where he was standing. He was referring to himself. And we know how this happened because they, they took him and at first they tortured him in unimaginable ways. And they whipped him and ripped the flesh from his body and he, he probably um, almost bled out the whole time. I mean, he was, he, he was not doing well. And after his battered and bruised body was taken from the cross, they sealed it in a tomb. And then three days later, the stone rolls away and Jesus isn't there because he rose again. He was true to his word. And then after he rose from the dead, the disciples all of a sudden remember this conversation. They say, wait a minute, he said this was going to happen. And this was the sign that he had the authority to do these things. This was evidence that he was who he says he was. And his authority came from God. And it says here, it says that they, they remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture. The scripture they're referring to is probably every Old Testament scripture that refers to the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And Jesus also told them that the Holy Spirit would come and teach them and remind them of what he said. Now, he doesn't tell them this till later, but it's before he was resurrected. So we're going to go in future uh, for John 14 where he says this, verse 25, it says, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, from whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. So after Jesus is resurrected, the Holy Spirit begins to speak. Hey, remember? Remember when he said this? Look, read your scripture again. Remember when it said this? It was talking about him. This is evidence of who he is, that God was with him. And as a result of this, because they read their word, it's the same reason why we should do it today. We read the Word and we say, man, it happened just like God said it was. He wrote some of these things thousands of years before Jesus fulfilled them, but it happened just like He said He was. And Jesus said, you know what? You're going to destroy this temple and it's going to rise again. And we know um, through not only the Bible, but through historical documents that this event actually happened, that He was in His grave and then He wasn't. This is, this is not a, a, a contested fact. Jesus lived, He died, He was buried, and the only thing that, that's contested is, is what actually happened when He wasn't in His tomb three days later. But He rose again from the dead. And we can look at the Scripture, because the Holy Spirit is still speaking to us today. He's still reminding us of what Jesus said, and, and we can go, you know what? It's true. And just like the, the disciples, we should believe all the more when we see that Jesus has fulfilled the things that he said he would, that the Old Testament said he would. And in verse 23 it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus spent the entire week the entire feast, which was a week in Jerusalem. And during this time, apparently, he performed many signs and miracles. Now, John doesn't actually record any of them for us. And uh, I, I think it's probably because if you, if you read uh, the, the last verses in the, in the Gospel of John, it says, now Jesus did a whole bunch more other stuff, but I, if, I wrote it up, if we wrote it all down, we probably couldn't contain it in all the books in the world. So the, the idea is, is that, that Jesus is here, he's performing miracles, he's performing signs, and John does record them because the gospel would get too long. But uh, as a result of this, they begin to believe in his name. 
But the thing is, is it doesn't seem to be a complete belief because if we go on to verse 24, it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. I just realized that when I read the, read the scripture off the screen on the back, it's right where the camera is. I wonder if people are like watching, it's like, man, this guy memorizes everything. He doesn't just spit it out. I can't, I don't have to memorize, I'm reading it. But anyway, man, you guys just distracted me again. Let's go back to verse one. <laughs> so, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. See, while they believed in him, their belief seemed to be incomplete. They believed that he was a miracle worker or that he was even this political or military messiah that it was going to come and save him. They're starting to think, oh, this is the one he's going to save us from the Romans. But they didn't see him as the true messiah, as the son of God. They, they had this idea of who the messiah was, not who Jesus really was. And the reality is, is that superficial faith based on excitement or based on an emotional experience doesn't stand the test of time. It's one of the reasons why I think Jesus gets frustrated. Like, you guys are always asking for a sign. The truth is, is that signs aren't going to convince anybody of anything. You could go down on the, you know, downtown and, and begin preaching to people, and somebody could say, you know what, if God's real, make him make this rock float in the air. And you know why that doesn't happen? God doesn't actually do that? Because if the rock started floating in the air, they wouldn't believe. They would spend the rest of their life trying to figure out how you did it. It wouldn't actually make an impact. It wouldn't make a difference. So anytime we express our faith based on signs, it's superficial, or an emotional experience, it's superficial. That's why so many people, you may have known people that come to church and they have an emotional experience with God and the altar call happens and they come up and they give their life to God, they're crying and it seems like something has happened and the next day they're right back to the normal life. Because they didn't have a, a real experience based on saving faith, they had an emotional experience. And they just reverted back to where they were before. And for this reason, it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them. In other words, Jesus didn't fully trust the people that were claiming to believe in him because he knew what they were really like. He knew what was going on. Jesus was fully man. He experienced all the same emotions and all the same things that we did. Because he was fully man, he knew exactly what these people were experiencing. And not to mention the Holy Spirit was still with Jesus, letting him know what was going on as well. He knew that some of these people would endure to the end. But he also knew that some would fall away. And he didn't need them to believe in him to be who he was. How many know that whether you believe in him or not, Jesus is still Jesus, God is still God? He didn't need them to believe in them, but he couldn't trust himself to him because he knew that some would fall away. Because the sad reality is that some of these people who are believing in him right now, amazed at his miracles, amazed at his teachings, so we believe that you're the Messiah, these are the same people that in three years are going to be standing on the side of the road as he's going to cross yelling, crucify him. The same people that are going to be standing in the crowd in front of Pontius Pilate saying, crucify him. 
because their faith was superficial. And Jesus knew that. So church, as we close today, we got to make sure that we don't fall in that camp. we got to make sure that our faith is solid, that our trust is in Him, that it's not fleeting, that it's not going to fall away just because something hard happens or life gets difficult. Because He is the one. He is the truth, the way, and the life. We can look at the Scripture, and we can look at what He said, and we have the Holy Spirit helping us to remember that you know what He is, who He said He is. And God is the one that sent Him. He was under the full authority of God. He had every right to do what He did. And what he did was gave his life for yours and mine so that we could be made brand new. Amen.